Thanks for worshiping together with us. We're back in, uh, still in, I should say, Genesis. And today we are jumping ahead a little bit. We're going to start doing some studies in some of the key stories and characters. We've laid the foundation uh, in chapters 1 and 2 for a wonderful God who gives us this amazing creation and opened up the narrative, as it were, in terms of man's role in that and how sin has come into the world, and now we're looking at some of the results of that and some of the, the key stories through this book. I really love the narrative parts of Scripture, and, uh, and we're going to get into it today. So there have always been uh, natural disasters in the world, but it seems that, you know, these days, and perhaps, I, and maybe this is just because it's so easy to find out about natural disasters and things that are going on in the world. You know, you can get it on your social media stream, your news feed, whatever, and we find out almost like it's, we're there and it's happening, you know. But it does seem as though they're on the increase a bit. And oftentimes, uh, human suffering that takes place because of these is, is immense, immense. And uh, floods are often some of the most devastating disasters. Did you know that there's actually a, a website called uh, floodlist.com? That details all the flood happenings around the globe right now. There's a big one going on in, uh, in Indonesia on the island of Java. Thousands of people have been affected by it. And usually you don't find out, you know, how many people have uh, uh, unfortunately lost their lives until well after these sorts of things. January saw some significant flooding in parts of, of Africa. I remember a, a flood in Africa, a horrible flood several years ago, uh, where thousands of people were left homeless, scores of people died and, um, during the floods and then, of course, after the floods because of disease that take place, water supplies that are, that are affected. And I read a story and saw a story about a woman, a, a pregnant woman, who climbed a tree to get away from the water, and she had her baby while she was there stuck in the tree, and she was rescued after three days. Three days. We just can't imagine in our own minds some of those kinds of dynamics. Um, they tell us that every year, you know, hundreds of people die every year from floods. Now, that's just floods, and there are thousands more from other disasters around the globe. And the phrase we use to describe these events really is kind of a, a poor one or a misnomer in some ways because we're, they're called natural disasters. Uh, in the ancient world, these would often have been called divine interventions, which is troublesome too in a lot of ways. But uh, the modern mind cannot conceive, though, of that kind of a God, you know, divine interventions participating in those sorts of things. How often have you heard of people who, who say something along these lines, like, I don't believe in a God, <coughs> excuse me, at least not the God of the Bible, or that kind of a God of the Bible. And herein lies the problem. The God of the Bible is in control. We believe in the sovereignty of God. And in some way, however this all works out, all of these events and the human mind, no matter how hard we may try to shut out the divine, though, has an uncontrollable need, it seems, for the divine. Many, many um, chase it in different ways, anyways, to fill something there. But, but we all seek some sort of relation with something wholly other or larger than ourselves. We, we need it. We need it. Um, you know, something akin to, to worship. Philosophers have talked about this for generations. There seems to be a void that needs filling. There's a, there's a famous 
line from a philosopher called, um, or, or something he had called, a God-shaped vacuum that exists in all of us, and people try to fill it however they, however they can. The reality is we recognize that to some degree, whether we want to admit it or not. So here's the big question. How could anyone worship a God who allows, allows, I use that word loosely, allows so much pain and suffering? Often that's the way people frame it with that word allows. And others would go farther. How can you worship a God who kills so indiscriminately? That's a tough one. It's a tough question to deal with. People have been hurt, have lost loved ones, endured tragedy, faced enormous persecutions, and have asked the question often, why God? Why do you allow it? That's a hard question. Some say that the Christian construct of good and evil are just a clever way to deal with the problem. Some people argue that. But there are others who say that if if God is in control, sovereign like I talked about before, however you want to frame that, If God is in control and evil things take place, then the divine must have had an evil side to it. How else do you explain it? Hindus believe in their understanding of the good and evil in the world that evil is one of the masks of the divine, one of the masks. Jews have struggled with this idea probably more than anyone else, I think, particularly. They they seek after a God who seems to have let them down so many times, yet they continue to seek There is a story, and I don't know if this is an actual true story, but it illustrates this point. Uh, Maybe more of a bit of a fable, but there's a story uh, uh, that took place during the Holocaust, which is one of those events that caused many to rethink or even abandon their beliefs in a God. But a story is told of how one night in Auschwitz, a group of Jews put God on trial and found him guilty of permitting obscenity and cruelty of the camps, of, of... allowing it to happen. They found him guilty, apparently, as the story goes, and condemned him to death. And when the proceedings were complete, the rabbi in charge announced that it was time for evening prayers. <laughs> a little stark juxtaposition there. We, we have an attraction to the holy that we cannot deny. And we may be angry at God, and we may even point a finger at him and say, how could you? We even may point a finger at him and say, you're not there because no God I believe in would allow this. Runs the gamut in terms of people's responses to this reality. Isn't it true, though, that we humans love to point our condemning fingers away from ourselves, though? Away from ourselves. We love to lay the blame somewhere else whenever we get the chance. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. You know, we learn that as children, don't we? God allowed this. Therefore, God is responsible. That's kind of the language. But it's ludicrous, really, when you think of the concept of God. It's ludicrous to think that God has anything to do with evil. It really is. God does not revel in evil, nor is it a mask that he puts on, on occasion to, you know, shake things up a little bit. Evil is a human condition brought on by the fall of man. We just learned this in in the early chapters of Genesis. God is holy and holiness can have no part of evil. Righteousness is the story of God. He is holiness and righteousness. He, He brings it to mankind and makes it available to them. He has nothing to do with evil. It's contrary uh, to, to who he is and he is grieved by it. What a picture we see in the story 
of Noah as God evaluates his creation. I'm going to talk about grief. After he created, he, he said that it was good. You remember that back early in chapter 1? But men sinned and now things are different. Genesis 6, chapter 6 talks about this. And in verse 6 it says this. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth and his heart was filled with pain. His heart was filled with pain. Five short chapters and we go from paradise to pain. So, God said, I'm going to wipe it all out and start over. Wipe it all out and start over. The, the men, the women, the children, the animals, the land, it all would change. All the original creations, you know, been adjusted and, and washed over and, and wiped away, as it were, and it comes up in a different form. All except one man and his family. And the text says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One man and his family, that's it. All of the people in the world at that time, and I, I've done some digging into this. You know, how many, the, how many could there be? Well, considering the lifespans that the, the Old Testament talks about, how old, you know, some of these people got to be in these early years because of, you know, lack of pollution and corruption and disease and all of these kinds of things. And they were as close to the garden as they possibly could be. And, and so things were better than they are now. Methuselah, do you remember him? 969 years he lived. 969 years. So... Reproduction would have been at an all-time high. Birth rates and, you know, the growth of the population. It's, it's possible it could have reached, you know, hundreds of millions. Some, some say even billions. We don't really know for sure because the Bible doesn't say. But one man out of all of that and his family. Crazy. Why is it? Because Noah was living in God's story. He was living God's story of righteousness. He knew there was a God. And he knew he wanted him to be different than all the rest that was happening around him. The scriptures say he was blameless among the people of his time and that he walked with God. But no one else was even considered. The rest were wicked and full of violence and corrupt with sin. I, I just, it's unfathomable in, in the human mind to, to understand how horrible the earth must have been outside of Noah and his family. It is a righteousness that a holy God seeks, and because of that same righteousness, he acts in and has no part. He acts in it, and he has no part of evil at all. Noah found favor in the eyes of God, and he was spared. He and his family. So often we talk about the flood, and we get, we get caught up in that great story. Um, you know, and, and some people will go, well, it's a fable, it's not real, it illustrates, and yada, yada. But we talk about it, you know, the, 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 the Bible gives the dimensions of the ark. You know, how many animals that must have been, the almost fable-like quality to the story. Was it a local flood, or was it all over the earth? Why are there, you know, flood stories in other religious books and, and accounts from other countries, uh, you know, before then, after then? Were they borrowed from the Bible, you know, and, and, and from the Pentateuch here or the other way around? Is the old ark actually sitting on, you know, the hills of Mount Ararat today? You've probably heard or seen or looked at pictures and, and on and on the questions go. On and on they go. And I don't really want to get caught up in that because, you know, there's, there's rabbit trails all over there. But we might miss the point and the facts here in this story. That the earth 
has never seen such massive destruction and never will again because there's the promise of God in this. There is a great lesson for us in regards to righteousness too and the need for it. And thirdly, regardless of what you believe or have read, this here, this story is a beautiful picture of God's grace towards mankind in this, believe it or not. Sure doesn't feel that way when you think about the numbers, but there's a beautiful picture of God's saving, protective grace. So here we go, a few lessons to take away this morning. And the first one I see, and these are in regards to righteousness, the first one I see is that righteous men find favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's it. Just as evil is punished by God, the opposite is true. There is, there is a stark difference here between you know, righteousness and unrighteousness. The righteous are saved and the unrighteous, the unrepentant, are destroyed. Now this is an overarching narrative of the whole story of Scripture, and here it is in the beginning. This is the story. This is God's story. This is history, His story. Righteousness versus unrighteousness. That's what it is. The righteous find favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that we need to remember. But we also see that righteous men trust the commands of God. Can you, um, like, just put yourself there for a minute. Put your, you know, put Noah's skin on, if you will, for a minute and live in his life for a minute. Can you possibly imagine what it must have been like to be asked to build an ark in Noah's day? If you, if you don't know this or recognize this, it had never rained before. <laughs> it had not rained ever. And then it's hard to determine exactly how many years it took him to build the ark, but it, you know, historians have done the math and calculated the age of people and when his children were born and all those kinds of things and probably about 75 years or so but no no power tools no reciprocating saws no drills not even any like kind of the glue and adhesives we have today that are so advanced i mean this dude's the greatest contractor ever right like he pulls this off this thing's massive think of the ridicule no rain, remember? Building an ark, it's going to rain. Persecution, you're a fool. Perhaps dissension in the family, I could see that happening too. You know, This is like nearly eight decades. Think of all the, the children growing up to see this and go, what's, you know, what's great grandpa up to? <laughs> now he's building an ark. For what? Rain. <laughs> it's going to save us. Man. Not to mention, this, this one always, I got, I've always found this one curious. Like, who's going to wrangle all these animals, you know? It's always been a question for me. Growing up on the farm and know, knowing how animals react when you try to herd them, you know? I think there must have been some divine intervention there because you got all those children's book pictures of the animals walking up, you know, two by two. Uh, wow, I, I just, I've never seen animals do that. Um, but so there had to be something um, God did in part to you know, make that happen. But Noah continues. Noah continues. And the whole time he's building this giant shoebox, he is calling people to repentance. You know, the, the scripture says, repent and turn to God or you will surely die. Rain is coming. It's a foolish picture, really. It's foolish. God uh, asked my wife and I once to quit what we were doing, uh, retool educationally, and then serve him. And that was, you know... Um, 
getting close to 30 years ago now. Man, was that a surprise. When I told my wife, she laughed at me. <laughs> when I told her that I believe God was calling us to this, she laughed at me at first. Not for too long, <laughs> uh, as I explained it, but it just seemed foolish. Has God ever asked you to do something that seemed foolish or not logical? How about sharing the gospel with those around you? How about caring for the widows and orphans in community? How about giving money you don't think you have to his causes? How about offering your whole bodies as living sacrifice? How about teaching Sunday school? For me, those two go hand in hand, teaching Sunday school and giving your body as a living sacrifice because children are sometimes like animals. But anyways... (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? God's ever asked you to do something that seemed foolish or not logical? How about quitting your job and becoming a pastor or a missionary? How about, you know, fill in the blank? Something crazy. People who are righteous or trying to be believe that God has a better understanding of what they need in life than they do. Let me repeat that. People who are righteous or trying to be believe and live in it, believe that God has a better understanding of what they need in life than they do. Man, that's surrender, that's trust, that's humility, that's faithfulness, that's hard. But that's what righteous people do. They believe that God's will is superior to our own understanding, that God's commands take precedence over our perceived priorities. Sounds easy to say say that, and I'm certain that Noah and his Family faced many uncertain days, like I said, ridicule, outcasts perhaps they were seen as, but they pressed on. Thirdly, righteous men are kept safe by God. Kept safe. This is a tough one when you think about, you know, um, the things that Christians go through in terms of persecution and even death. But this has an ultimate reality to it as well as we think about the other side of the cross and what Jesus brings in terms of eternal hope. But in chapter 7, uh, verse 1, the time comes, God says, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And again, probably about 75 plus years building this huge boat, decades of blood, sweat, and no doubt tears, and it's time to go in now. And it's not raining As people watch the birds fly towards the ark and animals go by two by two, I wonder what they thought. And then the rain began to to fall, and I wonder what they felt then. Did they all rush the ark and clamor to get in, perhaps? The only problem is at this point, God had shut the door. That's what this passage tells us. God had shut the door. That's That's an amazing picture, God shutting the door, as it were. There'd be no safe place to go, no mountain high enough, you know, no tree to climb and escape the waters. Verse 21 in chapter 7 says that everything that moved on the earth perished, perished. Righteousness is a big deal to God. If you haven't caught the picture yet, perhaps you need to, you know, open your spiritual eyes a little more. The ark is a picture of, or a type of, or a metaphor, if you will, of God's saving grace and mercy and compassion. And ultimately, it's, it's, it's you know, found in Christ Jesus, who is God's gift of righteousness to mankind. It doesn't get any clearer. Just as in days of old, God's story is righteousness. It is offered freely to those who will believe and accept Jesus. And just 
as in those days of old, God is still saying, my spirit will not contend with men forever. His days will come to an end. And if you don't find favor in the eyes of God through Jesus because of the righteousness of Christ, you can't get in the ark. It's as clear as that. And when the water starts to fall and the end is near, you will be one of the ones on the wrong side of the door. That's the message of salvation, the truth of the gospel. Hard to hear, just like it's hard to hear about millions of people perishing. But righteousness is a big deal to God. He's not a God who delights in evil and is waiting for another chance to just zap people because they're bad. It's not who he is. He just offers it freely over and over and over. He is a God who is righteous and holy and waiting for his created order to delight in him, to trust him and follow his commands. Just to accept this offer of Jesus. The point becomes, don't wait, you know. Don't wait if you hear, you know, Jesus speaking to you. Don't wait. Turn to him even today. Finally, another thing that I want to end on here is those who have been saved worship the Savior. It's beautiful. In chapter 8, after Noah has spent about a year in the ark with his family, he and his family and all the creatures and with him walk out on dry ground. Remember the story? He sends out the bird and finally a bird comes back with an olive branch, you know, an olive tree, a leaf from an olive tree in his mouth. And Noah's like, okay, we'll wait a little longer and then we'll go because there's, you know, obviously there's some vegetation popping up somewhere, so let's, let's get out of here. And they walk out on dry ground. And the first thing Noah does is make an altar and sacrifice to the Lord. <laughs> it is interesting to note what the sacrifice does, though, to the heart of the Lord. I love this concept of the heart of the Lord. It just makes him seem so relational towards us. He Earlier we see that God felt pain in his heart when he saw the sin of man become so great. And now as Noah worships here on dry ground, the, the heart of God is touched again. This time in such a way that God promised never to do this again. Remember the story with the promise of the rainbow. I'll never do this again. Worship is an act of thanksgiving because of the saving grace of God that ministers to the heart of God. Worship ministers to the heart of God. Wow. You can touch the heart of God with your passion, with your praise, with your humble surrender, with your words of thankfulness. And it's awesome. It's awesome that worship can do that. It's awesome this morning that we get to worship and then transition into communion together. What a beautiful, beautiful picture commemorating this, this sacrifice like we see here in Noah's story because of God's saving grace, his protection, his mercy, his compassion on Noah and his family, he, he worships. Jesus does that for us and we worship him. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. What a great promise these elements that we're going to reflect on. You know, what... What a beautiful promise that they, you know, t teach us and show us and remind us of again. I want you to prepare your hearts for this. We get to worship as we consider 
how God has saved us and how he offers his righteousness to us that he cares passionately about through Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning.